Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Embrace ASD podcast. I'm here with our next guest, Christine Kondo, known as This Great Ape on her blog. And Christine, uh, first question is, when were you diagnosed and how did it feel? Talk about that. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so I suspected that I might be on the spectrum in my early to mid 30s, which is when I first sort of heard about Asperger's. Uh, it wasn't clinically diagnosed until December 2015 at the age of 42. Um, and at, the, at that time, all it really did was sort of confirm why I'd been having the difficulties that I'd been having from an academic perspective. Um, but once I started sort of scratching the surface and doing more research, uh, it explained more and more of my life and of my experience. And, uh, it really has been life-changing, um, because I always thought growing up and even as an adult, that there was something inherently wrong with me or that I was broken or missing something in some way. And to have sort of every single thing that I'd gone through and all of these, all of this self-doubt to be, no, you know, you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just autistic. It, it really changed my life. That's something I can relate with a lot. I mean, um, you know, my story, I've said it on other episodes, so I won't belabor the uh, listeners with yet another tale they've heard twice now. So uh, yeah, I mean, I was diagnosed last summer and, before then, for years, I thought, you know, something's really screwed up with me. Like, I just, I'm just, I felt like a failure of a person, you know, failed neurotypical, I guess. Yeah. And um, when I learned about my diagnosis, I had similar feelings of relief. Like, oh, yeah, I'm not messed up. I'm just different. It's a difference. And I have to play to my strengths. And uh, it's been really tough because I'm trying to adapt to it, which means flipping my whole career perspective everything gets flipped on its head i'm sure you know and it's uh it's been a rough road but i've been a lot healthier and i haven't had bad burnouts like i did so something's happening that's going right in fact uh tell us about that career trajectory so yeah i uh it's funny i actually went to grad school because i was working as a scientific technical uh writer and editor i was helping researchers edit their papers so that they could be published in um, peer-reviewed journals. And I just wanted to make more money <laughs> because I wasn't, you know, it, it was hard work and I felt like I wasn't being well compensated for it. The great American pursuit. Yeah. So, but <laughs> when I got there, um, I I was really, we, we sort of had to pick a, a research kind of focus. And I thought, well, I'm definitely going to focus on autism. And it completely turned me in a different direction. And now um, I'm working on transitioning from, you know, being an editor, a science editor and writer to sort of an autistic or autism writer and spokesperson. And uh, I'm now pursuing the degree in technical writing because I want to, I'm not sure how to explain it, but I want to sort of create or normalize a terminology to discuss you know, what autism really is and is really like you know, to have autism because there's so many of us who compensate and nobody has any idea we're autistic. And also to sort of normalize the language about 
the accommodations that we need at work, at school, in order to be as successful as our neurotypical counterpart. Absolutely. And um, I know one thing that comes to mind immediately about that is uh, autistic people tend to be very good at detail-oriented work on a couple or one particular task. And schools, the way they're set up is to have four concurrent classes that you don't get to go as deep, you know, simply because there are four classes and they have to be mindful of that. Um, And it also means that we have to kind of code switch between subjects. And that is not as easy for autistic people. It puts us at a disadvantage. Um, So it would be cool if we kind of adopted what Oxford does. And Oxford has these tutorial programs where students take one or two classes and that's their, those are their classes for the semester. And they just go really, really deep into the subject. And uh, I can't say I can speak from experience on how well that would work, but I have an intuition that that would work a lot better for autistic people than juggling four different subjects. Cause you know, the, the whole cognitive rigidity aspect of it. I mean, can you speak to that? Do you agree? Do you find that it's different for you? No, I, I absolutely agree. And actually, studies have shown that uh, autistics um, with a normal intelligence level, you know, what I refer to as verbal autistics, um, take yes. sometimes six, seven, eight years to complete a four-year degree. Um, and so that definitely what you're speaking about, about not being able to take all these classes at once, that completely resonates with me. Both my first and my second bachelor degrees, I had to take about five and a half years to finish them, and I wasn't working at the same time. I don't, I don't know how I would have managed if I was trying to work. Now, um, I've figured out that because of the cognitive load entailed in editing, or even leaving the house to go to the grocery store, or you know, pump gas or whatever, yeah. that I really. Yeah, and I know you know what I mean. We'll get into masking, I think, in a second. But um, is that I I can't really concentrate on work for more than four or five hours in a day. That may or may not be any different from a neurotypical person. But for me, I've found that just because of how intense it is in my experience, there's no way I can work a full-time job. Certainly not a full-time job out of the house. I work from home. And I can't take more than one class at a time if I'm working at all. And um, I didn't ever think of it as because of the difficulties with task switching, although that has been my experience uh, where I, I need an extra few seconds, it feels like, to switch from one task to another. But also, I kind of feel like um, I, just don't have the, I just don't have the mental energy to do more than one thing at a time. Just learning to start a project and then put it down and do something else and come back to it, I think that's one of the hardest things I've had to learn as an autistic adult Um, because it's so hard to get back into it once you walk away. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're definitely not alone. Um, Just from anecdotal experience and reading things on Spectrum News by other autistic writers, um, it's certainly, that really does seem to be the case. And I know from my experience, it was really frustrating because, you know, when I was in college, I'd have classes where for a short amount of time, the first month or two, 
I'd be at the top of the class and I was answering questions, you know, rapid fire. The rote memorization really came to save me in history classes because, you know, a lot of it is memorization. Oh, yeah. Me too. But me too. what sucked was um, although I was per- outperforming my peers largely, not all of them, but, you know, outperforming a vast majority of them, I couldn't keep it up because, you know, I, I was juggling these classes and it eventually wore me down on top of the masking, on top of being in a classroom with harsh lighting and uh i had some professors who were understanding of autism and not they weren't too well versed but they were trying their best and the most ironic part of that is those two professors it was a class that was co-taught they were both on the spectrum (laughs) they don't think they ever got diagnosed but their signs were clear i mean i saw one professor (laughs) rubbing his temples blocking his eyes from the light the other is stimming with meditation beads in the middle of class they both have issues with prosopagnosia. You know, they don't remember face as well. It's like, you guys, it's hilarious to me. I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad that you brought up not remembering faces because it so, makes life so difficult. It does. Because people will come up to me and be like, hey. And I'm like, hey. <laughs> and I'm hoping they'll say something that will trigger my memory because... I just don't print visual data very well, you know, and it's when I was formally diagnosed, you know, you go through this huge battery of tests. It takes like all day. And one of the things they made me do was reconstruct a drawing that I'd been shown. Oh, the gestalt? And it was oh my God. terrible. I mean, it was, I mean, it was kind of embarrassing how bad it was. <laughs> what, what, um, do you remember what percentage you got? Cause it can't be worse than mine. <laughs> I don't. I'd have to look it up. But I remember, you know, this is what the autistic, you know, profile looks like is that you're super high in some areas and in other areas you're so low that it's, I mean, you know, it doesn't look like it could even be the same person. Yeah. I will say, I I like to say this, I probably shouldn't, but I will brag a little bit um, that I actually broke the verbal portion of the test. Um, They... (laughs) They ran out of words. Yeah, they ran out of words before they came across two in a row that I didn't know. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So that was that was one of those things where it's like for somebody who has a vocabulary that size and you can't recreate a picture you just saw like ten minutes ago. So yeah. Okay. So your your test sounds like they're pretty um, identical to mine. Where on the visual portion, you know, you have the gestalt with all the wacky shapes you have to draw over. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, they get harder and harder. And uh, I failed. (laughs) I mean, I got maybe 10th percentile on that. So when I bombed... No, I think that was worse than mine. I think I was like 30 or 40. Yeah. um, yeah. (laughs) So when I say I bombed, I mean I bombed. Yeah. And I just, you know, when people are like, oh, I'm so bad with names. I'm like, well, that must be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Because at least you know if you've met someone before, right? Like... (laughs) <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I, and the, it's, it's so funny. The, you know, did you take, did you do the face recognition test where they give you faces and you have to try to remember who's who? No, thank, thank goodness. Oh, no, man. that wasn't a part of. <laughs> so I got fifth percentile on that. Oh no. And the faces I did remember, or I just likened them to people I thought were like funny or funny looking. Like I'd say, oh yeah, that's the guy, that's the guy that looks like Bill Gates or, oh yeah, that's Seth Rogen. Yeah. That's a Seth Rogen guy. And, my, and the person administering the test was laughing the whole time like you have to you're do so that. right this guy is so you're right. so right 
Oh yeah. I actually, I will, in order to remember someone, like I'll look at something about them to associate, you know, it's like, Oh, this person has a pink sparkly cell phone case. And I'll use that so that if the face doesn't come in, you know, and I'll look at the person and go, Oh yeah, that's the person with a sparkly cell phone case. That's Amy. I met her here. And I mean, because if I don't do that, forget it, you know, it's gone. It's like, it never happened. Um, though there, there's a lot of, though there's evidence brewing in the autism research community. There's this, um, idea that a lot of the supposedly, uh, a lot of the supposed symptoms of autism are actually due to subclinical co-occurring alexithymia and face recognition seems to be one of those things because even neurotypicals with alexithymia, they have trouble remembering faces too but they're neurotypicals. And so that's really interesting. I wonder how much of it is this or that. Now, in my case, I think I'm doubly affected, like it seems you are. I don't know if this is what you got, but I got a nonverbal learning disorder um, diagnosis along with autism. So I can't really hold on to shapes well at all, facial, facial features, et cetera. I, I just don't have that ability. Visual spatial stuff wow. is not my forte. But um, I think that plus my subclinical exothymia makes for an especially nasty combination when I'm trying to remember people's faces. You know, it's interesting. There's so many crossovers and um, I think part of the problem is that so when you see somebody who doesn't read autistic, you know, they're smiling, they're talking to you, they're making small talk, you, you know, they just read as neurotypical. If it, without that sort of like, overlay of somebody who's like emotionally stunted and talks like a robot or whatever without that autistic characteristics are sort of attributed to other things i've heard anxiety i've heard ptsd i've heard depression i've heard you know social anxiety sensory sensitivity you know, none of these things that i mean individually that you know occur in neurotypical people but as a whole you know, what you were talking about makes an autistic. A lot of my autistic characteristics, um, a couple, my parents share, like my dad is, you know, he's also hyperlexic. Uh, my mom is also very sensitive to bright sounds and, and or bright light, <laughs> bright sounds, bright lights. <laughs> well, that's synesthesia right <laughs> there. there. <laughs> bright lights and sounds and smells. And um, you add on top of that, the sort of like someone whose brain develops differently, like an autistic does. And that's kind of what makes the diagnosis. It's not any one of those things. It's the whole picture. So I, you know, I like to think of autism as just sort of different. I think of it as like being left-handed, you know, most people are right-handed our world is sort of designed for right-handed people. So left-handed people have to cope and sometimes they need, special tools. And that's how I feel like autistics are. It's like most of the world is neurotypical, but there's this subset of people whose brains are fundamentally different and doesn't mean they're wrong or that anything's wrong with them. And, and also, you know, it's not something that can be treated or cured or fixed or, nor should it be. I don't think. What you're saying though, really resonates and it's not too long ago that actually people <laughs> did pathologize left-handedness you I know? know i know it was, it was last century it was crazy that people would try to force kids to be righty for what reason i mean it, it affects, it affects nothing right. in life and in fact 
you're just making them write worse and then they grade on penmanship. It's like they're it's really a lot of parallels to autism where they're literally setting people up to fail without recognizing that's the case because they try to fit you into a mold you're not built to fit into and then expect you to perform as well or better because you know you have to make up for all the uh in scare quotes weird behaviors you know and a lot of them are labeled problem children for that reason either got to duck your head or you know uh, yeah you know get labeled a a delinquent which i was labeled a delinquent as a kid pretty often oh (laughs) some of it was deserved (laughs) Um, i'll I'll admit a lot of it was actually deserved but uh, most of the time i was just kind of you know pointed out i'm also a person of color i'm hispanic and uh, it was a very white community so that didn't help help, the case so it's interesting that because this sort of um you touched on this uh when we spoke earlier about um that you know the uh, your words, innate atypicality of the autistic mind is not something that can be cured. Um, and then you talked about, you know, the difference between high-functioning, low-functioning autistics and how whether or not a low-functioning autistic's condition could be spun into something advantageous. And that really struck me because what we've been talking about, being left-handed, being autistic, is it's all built out of this sort of ableist perception of normal as right and any divergence from normal as wrong. And this has roots in colonialism and the scientification of medicine and medical treatment. I'm not going to, that's a conversation for another podcast, but the disabled or, you know, the non-normal are judged by their capacity to align themselves with what's considered normal. And so there's this sort of um, thing where people are gauged by how well they can sort of make themselves normal. And, uh, it's sort of like, if you are, if you're deaf and you refuse to use hearing aids, some would consider that then you're not entitled to any accommodations for your disability because you're not, you know, taking on any or using anything that would, you know, make you fit in or make the people around you comfortable. And I feel like that with autism. And I feel like that was sort of like the autistic savant myth, I'm going to call it because, oh my God, because yeah. Uh, yeah, it really needs to be said that the original Asperger's and we don't use the term anymore because of the Nazi affiliations. Oops. But the original yep. Asperger's uh, diagnosis, not such a great guy but, at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> um, but the Asperger's diagnosis said, original diagnosis said nothing about savantism and we're talking about like super rare just like any other savant of any other neurotype it's like they're anomalies for a reason that's incredibly rare incredible anomalies yeah and i mean yeah vanishingly rare and they don't seem so because it feels like the only autistics you ever hear about are savant oh yeah the good doctor rain man rain man uh even in real life, you know, Temple, Grandin, and people who sort of have excelled in some way or another. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and there's this sort of thing where it's like people are searching for some sort of explanation for something, for autism, for being left-handed, for whatever. And, uh, you know, what the problem is that, you know, 
some autistics don't want to compensate and they don't want to mask. And they're within their rights to do that, I think. But the problem is that doesn't read autistic. Those those persons read as like, you know, self-centered a-holes. Oh, for real. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody, you know, if I'm if I'm having trouble masking, people aren't going, oh, well, she must be autistic. They're going, God, what a bitch. Yeah. You oh, know, you're, and- <laughs> you're fake because sometimes the mask slips like, oh, you're fake. And it's like, well, when I try to be earnest, you reject me. You, you, you want the mask, but you don't want the mask. It's like, well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. No, it's really true. And uh, I think it has to, it's one of these things that people don't realize how hard we have to work. And that is the reason we work that hard. Um, if you're not looking too closely, we could appear neurotypical, you know, on the surface, don't get too close, don't talk to us too long. But the problem is that neurotypical people are really, really good at detecting insincerity. So if you let that mask slip for even a millisecond, you lose their trust, their guard goes up, and that's it. You know, from there on, you just, you're not going to be able to connect. They're not going to believe anything you say. And That's, I think, the hardest thing about what we do is that anybody can sort of put on this mask and be an actor for a couple of minutes here, a couple of minutes there, but doing it nonstop for an hour or more, it's it's so much work. It's so hard. And that's why people like you, people like me, that's why we burn out in class and burn out at work is because eventually... The concentration required to maintain this mask as you get to know people better and better and as your work, you know, as you take on more and more responsibilities is that you just run out of energy. Yeah. And for and so that's been, yeah. Uh, for the neurotypicals listening and everyone else of other neurotypes that may not know what autistic burnout feels like. I mean, everyone experiences burnout, but this is a categorically different sort where, I mean, Last time I got really burnt out at college, it, it felt physical pain. I felt physical pain in my body. Like it really felt like someone was tugging on my limbs and not letting go. Just like one of those medieval torture devices where they put your ankles and wrists in the ropes and just keep turning it. It felt like that, you know, on gentle mode, if such a thing could exist with that device. You know, it was like, wow, that that was awful. It did not feel good. And I tried telling a therapist about it. And he just couldn't grasp it. He's like, well, everyone gets burnt out. And I'm like, oh, you don't get it. You know, that's like when people are like, oh, everybody gets anxious. I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) This is completely different. Burnout for autistics is a physical thing. Because we really can't tell because our self-awareness is sort of limited um, until we're like way past the point where we should have stopped is that's, you know, we usually can't tell until we are so completely depleted that our brains shut down, our bodies shut down. I mean, I, you know, I would get to a point where I was physically ill, Yep. you know, like I I was sick after my, let's see, after my first, that first semester of graduate school, which I wound up having to leave, I was physically ill for two months, my doctors could not figure out what was wrong with me. I had a mono-like presentation, but I tested negative for mono. And that's, that's what happens. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, I just need a day off. Like I need weeks to recover. Yeah. It's not, 
it's not just a mental exhaustion. It really is a physical, not, not even just exhaustion, it's a physical pain. I mean, in every autistic person, I think, experiences uniquely. Like for you, it manifested in mono like symptoms. For me, you know, it manifested in joint pain and almost like a fibromyalgia type deal where it was like a full body experience. Everyone just has these unique presentations. But at the end of the day, you know, cortisol is incredibly unhealthy to have swimming in your, oh, yeah. you know, neuro neurological systems. And if you're doing that day after day after day and you can't let up because it's an existential issue. You let up and people reject you and people may downplay that, you know, oh, everyone gets rejected a little bit. Well, try getting rejected by everyone around you all the time. Yeah. I, it's a wholly different it experience. And I talked about that social ostracism in the article as well. And I, I, that's important too. We're not just talking about, oh, you know, that person doesn't want to be around me anymore. I'm talking about entire social groups that have shut me out. You know, and it and it happens over and over and over because at some point the mask slipped and I said something that someone took very personally and they became so upset and so angry that there was no coming back from it. And that was the end of it. And I would say there are all, you know, sometimes someone would, you know, pull me aside and actually tell me what was going on. But a lot of times. I never found out what it was. Oh, um, yeah. I, I think we can all relate there. And yeah, there, there's a, a blog post that I want to read an excerpt from your blog post, How Things Are on the This Great Ape blog. Oh, boy. And it's an incredible quote that I think really captures what we've been talking about, if you wouldn't mind me reading it. Oh, go ahead. So here's a quote. In college, looking forward to a fresh start, I bounced around a few different fringe groups. I usually fit in at first, but sooner or later, I'd find myself abandoned again. Occasionally, some kind soul from the group would pull me aside and say one of the following things. Either I had hurt someone so deeply that he or she couldn't comprehend that I was unaware of it, or I had turned off an entire group of people such that no one wanted to hang out with me anymore. And each time, I would be completely taken aback. Until it was brought to my attention, I had no idea that I'd said or done uh, what I'd said or done was hurtful. Once I was made aware, the pain and self-loathing were indescribable because I couldn't figure out why I hadn't anticipated such a consequence and was horrified by all the other times I must have hurt someone similarly that had gone unreported. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was hard. To, I remember, I'm getting choked up now as you read it because I remember it was really hard to write, you know, because it brought that pain right back. Because, you know, we're just like other people. We don't want to hurt people. We don't want to be mean. We don't want to, I mean, you know, we ourselves have been through so much pain like that. And to think that we cause that pain to someone else, it's, it really is. It's just completely demoralizing. Completely. It is. And it's, um, ironically, we're some of the most loyal friends you could ever have. I mean, yeah, no, we're, ex and that's the thing is that, you know, thanks to Dustin Hoffman, people think of autistics as these sort of emotionless automatons, you know, yep. and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, autistics in my experience are extremely emotional, extremely emotional people. Yeah. And there's a lot um, of data to back it up. It, we tend to have higher levels of yeah. effective empathy. 
we do, we're more sensitive, we're more emotional. Um, but the ways in which we deal with it and the ways in which it presents are so different from how it presents in neurotypical people. And the lengths to which we go to protect ourselves from those strong emotions sometimes reads as someone who's unfeeling because we have this huge wall, thick wall up to keep ourselves from being emotionally incapacitated when we're out and about, when we're talking to people, whatever. And it's read as being unfeeling when really we're just trying to protect ourselves. It's hard. It is. And uh, that is a lot of the reason some researchers are arguing that that's a large cause for co-occurring alexithymia is this sensitivity and then the rejection thereafter. It, it makes sense to in the face of childhood trauma, just build this wall of disconnect from emotions so you can survive, really. No one can survive in this. Uh, no one can really survive and thrive in a world where they're constantly emotionally dis destroyed, you know? Mm -hmm. So you see that with all sorts of other traumas and people, you know, whatever it may be. Sure. Um, they tend to shut it off and it's a defense mechanism and it, it manifests in how people shut down and even really stressful situations that remind them of past experiences. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, people, my therapist, wonderful woman, um, because of what I went through as a kid and growing up, my levels of anxiety, my levels of depression, um, and my PTSD, I mean, they're off the charts. And so how much of that is because of the autism and how much of that is because of how I was received by everyone around me. You know, my home was the only place where I was accepted. And I became aware that I was off-putting to my peers around the age of like nine or 10, I think. And from that point on, I never felt safe outside the house. I never felt like I could say what I wanted to say or do what I wanted to do. And even now, you know, as an adult in her late 40s, it's so hard for me to trust people because of what happened before. You know, I just, I'm, you know, I mean, how many times would I find out that somebody was nice to my face and complaining about how awful I was to their friends behind my back? You know, I just, it just became better not to trust anyone at all. And so what you're saying about, you know, not maybe not remembering faces is because, you know, I maybe I just don't even trust myself to make eye contact with them because I don't want to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that's totally understandable. I mean, given these experiences, you know, why, why should we? In fact, last time uh, we spoke, we had our guest on Aaron Arsini, Orsini, and uh, he wrote the book Autism on Acid. And it was about how coming to terms with his alexithymia and he used acid as a bridge to, in his words, switch out the contact lens of neurotypes, you know, to put on the neurotypical lens, so to speak, and his empathy, his understanding of people, it opened up the blockages in his uh, spirit, so to speak, by being on these substances and losing the fear. And there's also um, clinical data about this. Uh, Alicia Danforth, who's herself on the spectrum, uh, she looked at MDMA use to help autistic people with severe anxieties, and um, she found a great success with that. And you really do have to learn how to trust again and learn how to, you know, understand that, hey, we're adults now. Right. We have 
you know, cognitive tools to better protect ourselves and understand who's real and who isn't. And with the understanding of autism, you can even look for other autistic people. And in my case, you know, my friend group, there's a lot of autistic people, people with broad autism phenotype and people who are bipolar and have other neurotype um, differences because they get it. You know, they face some similar, you know, I have a bipolar friend who's faced similar instances of rejection for the way his brain works. And so he gets it. He doesn't judge me. He's like, you know, I'll sometimes cower after a loud sound and he'll apologize and he won't treat me badly. You know, if I kind of taper off when he's talking, he knows to take a break and just go on his phone and play some Hearthstone and not take it personally. It's like, oh, okay, you're a little overloaded. I, I get that. That's cool. Yeah. It's so wonderful to have people in your life like that. One of my closest friends um, is bipolar and uh, that person's always been very understanding um, of what it's like to sort of not have the ethos that neurotypical people take for granted, you know, um, and that trust. I am um, talking about trust. Uh, autistics, I don't know if it's particular to women or if it's just autistics in general. We're so easy to manipulate. And yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, because we just don't. We don't detect the love, the, the sort of undercurrent of unspoken information that goes on when people talk to one another. We, we sort of prioritize the words and the literal meanings of the words and the subtext we have to sort of learn when you talked about rote memory. I mean, that's basically what we're doing is learning just by, you know, trial and error and a, a lot of trial, a lot of error you know, what someone actually means when they're saying these things. And I still like to this day, I'm still discovering that when somebody says one thing, they mean something totally different. Um, my favorite example is when you're, say, you're looking for a couch on Craigslist and somebody says, oh, you know, $200 as is. And I was like, well, how else would you sell it? You know, <laughs> I didn't realize that as is meant that there was something wrong with it. And I'm like, how in the world was I supposed to figure that out? And that's, yeah, that is <laughs> and that's what I feel like, that's what I feel like talking to neurotypicals is like. I feel like I need a translator, you know? And so when somebody says things to me with the purpose of manipulating me, I don't, I don't hear it. I don't see it. And I've, you know, I've built a list now of things to look for, but as far as having a sense for it, I don't, I don't know if I ever will. I feel that um, I tend to be pretty good at it because one thing I am an extroverted autistic, which yes, we do exist. <laughs> oh yeah. I have something to say about that too, but I'll let you finish. <laughs> so I'm an extroverted autistic person and I grew up around some very manipulative people. So my heuristic analysis for that sort of uh, subtext and conversation, I had to develop a very keen sense for because it was not natural. I was taken advantage of by classmates, et cetera, et cetera, a lot. And uh, it wasn't until later in life that I can smell it. And even today, there are times when I don't. And it sucks because it goes both ways where then a lot of neurotypicals feel like I'm gaslighting or manipulating because they're looking for subtext and things I say when I'm literally saying it as it is. You know, I'm it, there's no hidden meaning. I'm I'm telling you what it is as it is, but they apply some emotional uh, valence to it, and so they they feel like it's an underhanded way of telling them something. It's like, well, no, absolutely not. I, 
if I had a real issue, I would just tell you this is this is really how I feel. Yeah, it's it's so true. Um, and I only I really only have like three people in my life that I don't feel like I have to sort of you know present through an a neurotypical filter myself to them. You know that I can just be myself and say what I mean. And I have to say my my significant other he he's really enjoying being with me because I just say what I'm thinking <laughs> and he doesn't have to get, you know, <laughs> no, he's not autistic actually. Um, but he just finds it really refreshing to be with a woman who doesn't expect him to read her mind. Yeah. I mean, you know, because I'm like, well, no, I mean, why would, how would you know something if I didn't say it? Like, that's my default way of being. <laughs> What are you, Professor Xavier? What is this? <laughs> you can't expect it, me to do this. I, I like that you brought up introversion and extroversion because I think a lot of people tr in trying to sort of conceive of what it must like to be autistic just think it's like extreme introversion. Yeah. And the two are complete. They're completely unrelated. Like one has nothing to do with the other. Autistics come in introverted and extroverted flavors. As, as you know, autism is a sort of a, I like to say it's a fundamental experience of reality that is vastly different from that of a neurotypical. And I feel like we need to, well, first, before we can do anything, we have to sort of make that possible in the mind of a neurotypical where you have to be like, listen, your experience of reality that you share with 99% of the people you know is only one experience of reality and there's an alternative experience that's completely different that's unlike anything you've ever experienced and until we can sort of have people sort of allow for that into their consciousness you know i, I don't know how far we're going to get as far as you know autistics being accepted you know, the way they naturally are and not with the neurotypical you know front i like to say yeah, the good news is um, the neurodiversity movement has really been pushing hard on this front. And a lot, we've been seeing a lot more, you know, acceptance and a lot more, you know, things are getting better. It's slow for sure. It's definitely not close to where it needs to be, but it's a lot better than it was in the 80s. And, well, you know, uh, even the fact that the Post was willing to publish my article, which was a pretty raw, sort of, you know, straight, this is what it's like, I think is. I mean, I'm not even sure if that would have happened five years ago, you know, so that definitely speaks to the idea that neurodiversity is starting to become a thing, you know, like a, like an actual, it's not just like autistics or, you know, like these nonverbal kids that hit themselves or whatever, you know, the idea that neurodiversity comes in all these different forms and that it's much more pervasive than people think. I mean, that's, that's huge. That's just huge. Absolutely. And bringing it back to what you mentioned about women on the spectrum, I think you're right that there is a unique predisposition to manipulation because um, women are often expected in many cultures, and the USA for sure is one of these places where they're expected to be subservient and not rock the boat, or else you're considered a bitch or you know, a troublemaker, you're discordant, every, pretty much every negative label, just because you stand up for yourself or you don't agree with someone and you're not aggressive, but assertive, which are different 
people see men as more assertive and see women as more aggressive for the same yeah. behaviors. Yeah, I hate to say it, but I feel like male autistics sort of get away with more than female autistics do. Because when I when a man loses his temper, people around him sort of straighten up and start paying attention. But when a woman loses her temper, the opposite happens. She's sort of dismissed. So when I'm, I'm you know, a woman has a meltdown in public, she's not people aren't gonna think, oh, maybe she's autistic. They're just gonna think she's hysterical or God, what's wrong with her, or something like that. And the female presentation of autism itself is so, so different. And one of the reasons that you don't see it a lot is because female autistics start masking from a really young age. Yeah. And they tend to be better at it. Yeah. And they tend to be, well, yeah, I think because fit, like you said, fitting in and sort of like not rocking the boat, um, there's sort of this cultural expectation for women to sort of fall into that category. And so autistic women, you know, are just basically doing the best they can with the information they have and sort of the expectations of the people around them. And also, you know, female autistics, our stims tend to be much more subtle because our parents, you know, from a very young age were like, were just sort of didn't permit them. So we had to figure out ways to do stims that weren't as noticeable. Um, yeah. So, I mean, my, my poor mother, she's like every single <laughs> ballpoint pen she ever gave me is missing a cat. Because I chewed them in, literally into pieces. And wow. um, now they make, <laughs> this is great, they actually make like chewable jewelry for women. Now it's supposed to be for women with autistic children so that the women can wear them or whatever. I have a lovely silver tone leaf <laughs> that I wear <laughs> so that I can stick it in my mouth, you know, if I'm nervous about something. And, um, you know, so I feel like we've completely wandered away from the questions you wanted to ask me. Hey, well, this is the whole point. It's uh, <laughs> we These digressions are not just welcome, they're encouraged. This okay. is, uh, it's supposed to be, you know, we're just hanging out. There are so many serious business podcasts out there. Yeah. And uh, we just don't have any podcasts that show autistics at home. And <laughs> that's really the point of this. But we can, we can get a little serious too. <laughs> we don't have to. <laughs> But no, I do want to talk a little bit about the um, Americans with Disabilities Act, because that's sort of my, that's uh, your passion. That's my, my latest sort of, yeah, I guess you could say passion, but it's really, if I do anything, you know, with my degree, with, you know, this raised profile or whatever, the Americans with Disabilities Act is very explicit when it comes to accommodations for people with physical sort of visible disabilities, you know, people who are in wheelchairs, people who have low or no vision or low or no hearing, you know, all of these, they're very explicit about, you know, um, flashing lights associated with fire alarms and braille on numbers and elevators and ramps and, and handrails and all of these things. And even though autism and other sort of neurodivergences are explicitly included in the act as persons with disabilities who deserve accommodations, there's nothing in the act itself that describes what these accommodations actually are or should be. And if I do nothing else, if I can sort of start to, you know, lobby to have it amended to include accommodations for people with 
you know, disabilities that aren't physically apparent, that would, you know, that would make it all worthwhile, you know, and, you know, we need to start talking about how to accommodate this whole cohort of people who could be and want to be employed, but because they can't, you know, be productive in a neurotypical environment are unable to find work or are constantly cycling from job to job to job. You know, they go, they do well for a few months, they burn out, they leave. In my case, I always managed to leave before I was fired, but they leave or get fired. It's it's a skill, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I really, I mean, I, my ability to come up with, you know, valid excuses for leaving was, was really unparalleled. I guess I have more imagination than I gave myself credit for, but, um, but, you know, these people, they, I mean, I don't know about you. I would love to make a living wage on my own. And I spent, you know, 20 years of my life trying. And I finally realized last fall after, you know, I hit another wall again and couldn't work for 10 days. It's like, you know what? It's just never going to happen. Not in my lifetime. And so I'm now applying for disability. And, you know, I'm only about I guess seven or eight months into what I've told is a multi-year process. So I'll <laughs> you'll you'll know more when I do. But um if what if there were a way to sort of like, you know, have uh a sort of a sensory, you know, some place where someone on the spectrum could go and be undisturbed. No flashing lights, fluorescent lights, you know, white noise machine. Um, sort of a do not disturb on the door. You know, what if autistics in the workplace, if their coworkers knew that they couldn't be interrupted to chat or whatever, they had to be left alone to work because they can't be distracted or how, how would it be if, you know, people knew when they were working with autistics that they're literalists and not to take things personally or, or, you know, the fact that if an autistic can be as productive in four hours as a normal person could be an eight, that person should make the same amount of money. You know, like these are things, these are things that we just, and actually it's interesting because what's going on with the pandemic right now, all of a sudden, all of these employers are discovering that people can work from home and be productive. So who knows, you know, this may be really good for us if there's any silver lining to this horrible, horrible tragedy that we're going through right now. Um, but I, yeah, is that I, you know, just a shift of, compensation to productivity instead of, you know, hours logged at a desk mm -hmm. would be, I think it would be life-changing for people on the spectrum. Absolutely. And frankly, I think it would help everyone in general because uh, there are a lot of creative neurotypicals who they don't work within the mold of a nine to five, but they still do excellent work. And why are you punishing people for helping your firm do better? Like why hold these rigid expectations, which is ironic because we're right. thought as rigid. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I know it's funny. I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something else. You know, people think of autistics as not being able to sort of communicate or understand or whatever. And we actually understand neurotypicals really, really well because we yep. have to because we have to interact with them all the time. It's neurotypicals who don't understand what being autistic is like. And I find that sort of an interesting, you know, like most people think it's the other way around, but in fact, autistics tend to be extremely insightful people. Yeah, I mean, so there was one of our guests, um, Eric Marmestein, 
And this is an autism parent that everyone should try to emulate. So one, his son was uh, diagnosed autistic and his initial move was, okay, I don't know anything about autism. So what did he do? He, inter- he uh, interviewed many, many autistic adults. He did not want to just go to neurotypicals and take the you know, r- uh, run-of-the-mill advice. He wanted to get it straight from the tap, so to speak. He wanted people to say, what are your experiences? My son's going to grow up and be like you. And I want to make sure he grows up in an environment that nurtures him. So then he researched, he learned, and um, he does not punish his son stimming. He doesn't force him to do things that are not, you know, in his, that he's not suited for. And at the same time, he's guiding him to find his special interests. He's, he's trying to make him a success. And so now his work is to also work with uh, companies in Israel where he lives and other countries, I mean, other companies internationally to make autism inclusive workplaces, you know, talk about noise canceling earphones and stuff that tech firms could easily provide and different lighting. And uh, he actually launched a um, freelance service for autistic people to contract with companies so they can do freelance work at home. It's called Spectrums. So he's, he's like, Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. He's a, he's another breed. He's, he's a sort of neurotypical ally. Uh, He believes he's neurotypical. Um, He just really took this in the direction that we've all really wished that people would, you know, instead of looking at his son, like, ah, crap, well, there goes my dreams for him. It's, oh, cool. Now I have to make a new set of dreams that I can help guide him down. And yeah. Um, Aut- parents of autistic children, by and large, in my experience, they're just incredible, incredible people. And I've, I've had people now that I have sort of this raised profile reach out to me to talk to me about their autistic daughter or son and what's going on, and you know, to get my insight and going, well, he does this or she does this or what do we do about that and whatever. And what I tell them, you know not just for the specific situation, just in general, is that the unconditional love and acceptance of your autistic kid is the most important thing. And that goes right into what you were talking about, about not trying to make your kid be neurotypical and not implying that there's something wrong with him because he isn't, but just going with it. And that's what my parents did with me, even though, you know, it's 70s, they didn't know, nobody knew what Asperger's was or whatever. They didn't, you know, they were, my mom was just kind of flying by the seat of her pants, but they never made me feel like I was broken. They never made me feel like there was anything wrong with me at all. And that's just, that's the most important thing, especially in light of sort of the social rejection that autistics get from their peers. Absolutely. Um, it's also really rough as an extrovert, extroverted autistic, because, um, I want to meet people and I want to be in big groups. So this is really hard for people to understand is that I can get tired out by big groups while simultaneously wanting to be in the thick of it. I mean, I was the person dragging my friends out to noisy concerts and clubs and I would get in the middle of the mosh and I would be in the thick of it. I'd be, you know, jumping around with strangers. There are pictures of me at an Anamanaguchi concert just jumping with these two random people I'd never met before. I'd always made friends at shows just randomly because I am not afraid to talk to people. I'm just, I'm just, I want to, I want to meet new people. 
But then there's that rejection side. It's like you want to meet new people, but people think you're kind of weird. And I found that in high school, that was kind of cool for people. It's like, oh, yeah, you're quirky. And then you get older, like, oh, this doesn't change, does it? That's not just quirky. And I'm like, yeah, well, no, it's not. (laughs) This is who I am. It doesn't turn off. I have met uh, another autistic who is an extrovert. And they really are. I mean, you know, introversion and extroversion have to do with, you know, what you need to recharge, whether it's being alone just for an introvert or being around people for an extrovert. And so neither of those things have anything to do with autism at all, right? So, Well, it kind of does and kind of doesn't. I mean, um, the way I do it is my ideal way to recharge is avoid people physically, but talk in groups on things like Discord and other right. you know mediums or play League of Legends with my friends. And I still want to be highly social, but at a safe distance. <laughs> so... Uh, it's cool how it interacts, though. I mean, I like it. I, I mean, I have phone conversations with friends that last three plus hours. That's my way of recharging. So, okay, no eye contact because it's so hard not right. to mask. It's so built in right? that even when you're with people who accept you, there's still masking going on, even at this fundamental subconscious you, level. Because you, hey. if you ever, you can't afford to turn it off. So I, I know exactly what you mean. As soon as I walk out my front door, bam. Even if the only person who happens to be out there is like, you know, my neighbor's cat or something. As soon as I leave this place, it's just up because you never know who might see you and you can't afford, you know, to let your autistic self show. You know, what you touch on, it goes into what I have referred to in the article and what I call the autism paradox. Which is that? Yeah. Oh, which article? So the viewers know. I mean, viewers, uh, listeners. I, I think I mentioned I mentioned it in the Washington Post article. I've definitely talked about it on my blog. But the autism paradox um, and the way it manifests is that people with autism look too normal to need accommodation. Mm-hmm. But if they don't look that normal, they put people off, and they can't, and they don't can't have relationships, and they can't have jobs. So you're sort of stuck, like. You either have to sort of render yourself, you know, low or unemployable by being yourself, or you have to present this neurotypical front that sort of disqualifies you from getting accommodations. And what I want to do, and that's why I want to sort of make this terminology come to be and be used more often, is this: there's got to be another way. You know, there's got to be a third way. You've got to be able to do what you need to do to get along with people and still qualify for autism accommodations. Because the one time that I tried to get them, I had to lay open my entire psychological history to these people and it still didn't work. I still didn't get what I needed. And you're not supposed to have to disclose what your disability is, but if you ask for something and it's not for, and, and your employer's not convinced that you need it, you have to provide evidence and then they get to de- and then they get to decide you know these people who don't have any experience in psychology or whatever they're the ones that decide whether or not you get the accommodations and i just i hear this story over and over and over from other autistics where you know they just can't get accommodations that they need to work because they don't quote look autistic Unquote. You talk about in your articles and something we talk about in podcast and on the site is 
the issue with the high functioning, low functioning dichotomy and how it's honestly largely verbal capacity. And it's about presenting neurotypical. That's what essentially gets you the high functioning label. And it's totally disingenuous. And it doesn't honestly reflect the experiences of many autistic people. Oh, that's absolutely right. Um, I really don't like the word high functioning because the amount of effort that goes into it and the fact that I'm, I still fail, you know, from time to time in certain situations, none of it feels like high functioning to me. I mean, it feels like barely getting by basically. And I think, uh, I prefer to separate autistics into sort of like verbal autistics that we, you know, we think of in the normal intelligence range and, you know, and then low or nonverbal autistics. And these are the ones that need a lot more support because high and low functioning is just not, because I, I think it sort of makes it seem like high functioning autism is autism light, you know, like it's just not as hard to be a high functioning autistic. Like the world doesn't affect you the way it affects a low functioning autistic. And that's really not true. Um, my sensory sensitivity is extreme, even for someone on the spectrum. It's one of the reasons that I just had to stop working outside the home is because if there was like a rattling fan somewhere, if there was a flickering light, if there was a, I actually have a sign on my porch that says no leaf blowers. If there's a leaf blower going, so I can't think, I can't concentrate. It's just forget it. You know, I, I actually, I had to leave a party because of the smell of the Doritos in the bowl or yeah, or there was a. I was sitting in a meeting, and the woman next to me was wearing such strong cologne that I had to get up and leave. Dang. And that doesn't feel high functioning to me at all. No, I think it should be said that even without high verbal ability, there are a lot of people who are talented and they're excellent in other domains. But you know, verbal expression is only one part of intelligence, and a lot of the time it's muscle coordination issues and. Some people just don't have a high verbal IQ, but have higher IQs elsewhere, you know? And I, I've met such people. I've met, I've met people who yeah. um, are like auto mechanics. They, they're not very good at expressing themselves. They have difficulty with writing and speaking in general, but they just do these incredible things with math and with technology. It's like, holy crap, like, how did you even think of that? And it's like, oh, well, I just imagined it. As if like... Anyone can just imagine that, you know, anyone can just make a schematic in their brain in real time. I'm like, damn, that's crazy. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because there is a tendency in the academic community. And, and this includes people who do research on autism who aren't actually autistic themselves. But don't get me started. That um, I'm looking at you, Simon Baron Cohen. <laughs> that, oh, my gosh. <laughs> there's a there's a. Yeah, there's some very strong feelings about him. Um, but that there's only one kind of intelligence, and it's the kind that you get from going to school, going to college, pursuing an advanced degree. And that's just not the case. And the fact that that people who have that level of intelligence seem to talk down to people who are intelligent in other perhaps less obvious ways is is a huge, it's a huge problem. I mean, it, it really is part of the reason that we have this huge partisan and theoretical divide mm -hmm. in this country. And so to think of, I mean, people seem to not be able to resist stratification, you know? And so I figure, I mean, should we maybe just give up 
completely on trying to categorize autistics because, I mean, we, I think we can agree that high functioning, low functioning is, is not useful or appropriate. Verbal, nonverbal. I mean, it's almost like, you know, need to sort of stratis- stratify, make a hierarchy, categorize whatever that we're sort of pushing against that may be as much cultural as anything else. Absolutely. Um, I think if you look at a lot of Eastern cultures too, they they kind of balk at the idea of America's and other Western nations' obsession with listing and categorization. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, even Nietzsche in his writings, he talked about it and he made a joke about how, you know, the cockroach expert is the one who just specializes in the legs of the cockroach another the wings and they miss the form of the animal as a whole because they just hyper focus then try to reintegrate it into a wider world with these theories that are strict adherences to that myopic studying rather than get a more holistic picture which is you know why the phenomenological aspect of autism is largely ignored in research absolutely absolutely and it and there's this sort of thing where you know when 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 we're talking about feminism you know we prioritize female writers when we're talking about racism we prioritize writers of color but when we're talking about autism it's completely the opposite it's almost as though the experts don't trust autistics to be able to express their experiences even though in any other domain the autistic viewpoint would be privileged it's 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 interesting. And I, we do have, as a Western culture, and people don't think of Western culture as a culture, of white culture as a culture, but we do have a culture that really worships data. And be, I think just sort of recognizing that in the way that Nietzsche did, and if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, you should read some Foucault. But I think... Rec- <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Okay, so I can drop Foucault in this conversation. Off. That's cool. Um <laughs> But even even, you know, just recognizing that white culture is a thing and that it's not a default, I think, is an important sort of first step in in getting people to maybe prioritize different ways of knowing things, and different types of knowledge and different types of intelligence. And then, you know, someone who's autistic is not a different, like not wrong or less than or abnormal. They're just a different way of seeing the world. Absolutely. You know, I know we've been hitting that point over and over, but it's because all roads lead to Rome, so to speak, where a lot of the history of autism, in fact, I written an article not too long ago using Hannah Arendt's The Banality of Evil, that thesis to analyze the history of autism research and how lots of bad things come from people who think they're doing great work. You know, it's woeful because they have a worldview and a model and they... You know, for example, Leo Connor, who helped a lot of Jews escape Nazi Germany, also really made some gross oversimplifications and very harmful stereotypes about autism that exist to this day. About autism. Whereas Hans Asperger didn't do that so much to autistic students and talked to them affectionately as little professors while also working for a laboratory that sent children to their deaths to Nazi camps. Yeah. And so it's like this, it's so mired in awful, awful circumstances and awful actions. And uh, we see it, like people like Simon Baron Cohen, who said glowing things about autism and how autistics 
typically have a strong sense of justice and all these great things was also the same guy who said that we see people at dinner parties as bags of skin and clothes like i've never thought of a human being as a sack of skin in clothes like that's just so off. yeah no and and he he discussed it's interesting because everything about an autistic is sort of pitched as a deficiency yes instead of a difference so instead of someone you know so they they talk about um central coherence and that autistics don't have good central coherence and that we, we see the details instead of the whole and you could just as easily say that neurotypicals um miss small details because they preferentially see the whole so it's not like that we lack something we just see it differently and and the same thing comes from these sort of assumptions about uh theory of mind you know where well an autistic can't put themselves in someone else's shoes and that's just not yeah. true and it's not correct in my experience the issue is i do that and there are too many options for me to make a judgment that one is the correct option the thing is that you know they say that well we don't we don't we can't communicate. We don't understand communication. We understand language really, really well. And if someone's emotions is in alignment with what they're saying, we're very empathetic and, and we can be really wonderful and warm and, and offer support. It's when someone's words and their emotions are dissonant that we prioritize the words whereas neurotypicals prioritize the emotion. And it's not a right way and a wrong way. It's not that, it, it's just a different way of interpreting what we see. It's not that we don't hear emotion. It's that if it doesn't match what the person is saying, then we prioritize the words instead of the feelings. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I, I relate very heavily to that. In fact, one of my best friends, he was over right now amid this whole pandemic craziness uh we had a conversation the other day where that exact misunderstanding happened where the valence in my tone is what he was really honing in on and on his tone you know but mm -hmm. um he was wondering why i wasn't really getting it and it's because the, you know the words logically didn't match up it was like well you're not making the point so right. you know i i can't honor that which has no real um, content, but the content was loaded in the emotions. We front loaded it with the emotion I was supposed to understand as subtext, but mm -hmm. in my brain that just doesn't compute because I'm like, oh, well, that's cool. I, subtext is important and I get it. There's a place for that and I can read it. But yeah, I'm going to prioritize the content of what's said and try to detangle that because even when I'm feeling really emotional, um, I express it not just through the emotion in my voice, but through the content and you can hear it. I'll say what is on my mind and without sugarcoating it. Right. Right. I, I really, I could never play poker oh boy. because I just, cause everything is on my face. Yeah. You know, um, I was sitting at a community meeting with, um, my significant other and he could tell that I thought that the person who was talking was full of crap because of the look on my face and he started giggling and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, 
I'm like, I'm glad I'm providing you with entertainment <laughs> because yeah. it just, I couldn't, it was, it was all over my face. Like I couldn't hide, like anybody who looked at me would have known that I was really annoyed. So now when I, when I do that, when I go to those types of meetings, I keep, um, I bring a little pocket coloring book with me so that I can focus on my lap and nobody sees my face. You know, it's funny because people <laughs> say this like it's rude and a bad thing, but that's what you want in a lot of cases. If you want to cut through bullshit and get to the meat of things, then you need people who can do that. You need people who are not going to go with the flow for appearances. Like, listen, fuck that. You're trying to mess with us and don't waste our time. You know, it's true. And and what's interesting about it is for neurotypical people, uh, you know, breaking those filters down, bringing those walls down is as hard for them as putting them up is for us. There was this great article about the shuttle disaster and about the fact that, you know, this the, the shuttle launch, when we when we think of the uh, Challenger disaster, the, the shuttle launch had been put off for months and months and months. And the scientists yep. were trying to communicate that for a completely unrelated reason needs to be said that they didn't think that the shuttle launch should go. And what the people they were speaking to interpreted was that it should, that it wasn't a major issue. And it was because they simply could not bring themselves to break down that wall and say, no, you know what, what we're saying is no. And I theorized after reading that, and I wrote a post about it, that, you know, maybe having someone on the spectrum involved in these sort of like critical situations where information has to be transmitted, you know, unambiguously, having autistic people in those positions could be beneficial. It could be life-saving. Absolutely. And I know from... um experience i used to work at a big company doing uh cyber sec stuff cyber security uh so if you misheard that get your you get your minds out of the gutter i uh i did mishear <laughs> yeah yeah no, thanks I'm, for pointing that out <laughs> for, yeah i'm a professional phone sex operator <laughs> no but uh <laughs> if power to you if you are so it can be a difficult job um but i was doing cyber security and such and there was a talk um held by this one person who worked there and she was the head of cyber operations and uh she's autistic for sure i mean so like she just presents so many of the symptomologies and she's even talking around it she's clearly never been diagnosed or she didn't want to share her diagnosis but the way she spoke about you know being direct with people and how that was an issue for her growing up her introversion her wanting to get away from people you know the way she just kind of went down the laundry list of things that's like yep I know what you're talking about. And uh, she talked about how in her job, her brashness, so to speak, it's not really brash, her honesty, really it is. She is in that position largely because of that ability to communicate directly. Like, listen, you're going to cut through all the crap and just say what it is because this is security on the line. You can't take chances like that. Yeah, that's a great, a great example. I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. When we talk about, you know, valuable... Uh, people, valuable employees not being able to work, like that's a perfect example where, you know, having, you know, someone with autism is able to contribute in a unique way that winds up being like you're saying, we're talking about security here. It's beneficial. It's, it's essential. Yeah. And I can imagine that would be super useful for judges where the impartiality 
is not quite there to the same, you know, I mean, the impartiality is there, but not quite to the same extent as it would be for people with an ideological drive. You know, it's more that what are the facts and how do I respond to the facts? Right. Right. My, I'm really passionate about making, you know, dispelling stereotypes about autism and making the autistic experience sort of real and felt and a part of our cultural experience. And, um, I also don't want to spend 90% of my time asking people for money. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't know how people do that. I don't even like networking because it seems like shameless self-promotion. And I'm like, well, why do they call it networking? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay. So I am going to need to close this down here in a minute. But why don't you, why don't we see if, is there anything else? I seem to have some things that we didn't get to, but is there anything else you want to ask me? Sure. Um, one thing that I think is important to ask, we somehow missed is where did the, this great ape name come from? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we spoke a little bit about it. So um, uh, in October, 2013, I had a catatrophic onset nerve entrapment under my right shoulder blade that went undiagnosed for a year and a half. Uh, my pain level was like a nine or a 10 all the time, every day. That's insane. And it was insane. And so I started a blog in 2014 to deal with that. Um, you know, I was, I was pursuing my degree in animal science at the time. I was fascinated with evolutionary biology. And as you know, all humans are great apes among other animals. And, uh, I, on the outside, I looked like this normal, healthy adult woman. And on the inside, I was, had this debilitating chronic pain and you know that that's kind of how great apes are right we all kind of look the same on the outside but inside each of us is quite different and so that's why i named it this great ape i also like the way it sounded but um it seemed like a really good title for a blog about an invisible disability and now you know since i i've since sort of shifted it and in the last maybe four or five years i've been talking about my autism on it and it's also kind of seems a little prescient now looking back that that's the name I picked, but that that's it. That's where we are. I'm now I'm this great ape forever. Hell yeah. Well, you're, you're, I think you're a pretty great ape, Aww. you know, all things considered. You too. Yeah. Thank you. I, I love that. I would love to hang out with all sorts of apes. They are adorable <laughs> and very cool creatures. No bias. You know, I love dolphins too. Yeah. They don't make good pets. You don't really want something for a pet that can rip your face off. But no. they're very, very interesting yeah. animals. Um, I have an issue with the whole <laughs> pet ideology in general, but that's a whole conversation and a, a different story. <laughs> but yes. I don't even think you and I could make that a part of this podcast. No. Although we've, we've certainly like <laughs> wandered far and wide. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I wonder, is there anything else you want to bring up? Um. So of course, you know, I want to uh, do a little plugging. Of course, but we'll we'll save know. that if you don't have any other questions. <laughs> but, I, I didn't um, forget you. <laughs> uh, but no, I just really want, you know, you know, we're having this conversation, the two of us, and we wouldn't, no one would think this was a conversation between two autistic people. Mm -hmm. And um, that I, I think is something that I really want to drive home is that the experience of autism is by and large invisible. Autism isn't something that you can tell about somebody just by talking to them and, and just sort of open that up 
as something that that is a truth about autism is that you know people may have friends on the spectrum they may work with people on the spectrum they may have clients on the spectrum and have no idea and the idea that someone could have autism and you can't tell just by looking at them or listening to them i think is a really important absolutely and there's a statistic that speaks to that where um there was a survey in silicon valley where they asked how many people are autistic and of the people who even replied in the affirmative, not including all those who don't know their diagnosis or were too afraid to speak out about it, even in an anonymous survey, 2% of the people who work there are autistic. That's double what the, uh, you know, what the percentage we have for the population of autistics in the world, which is sitting at around 1% now. So that's double. That, that's, you know, that's incredible. So this, this idea that it's invisible is, you know, that's the proof in the pudding, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this has been awesome. And uh, we've been going on the better part of almost two hours now. And so <laughs> I know well, it's nice. I don't usually get to just, you know, talk about being autistic. I mean, even my closest friends aren't that interested. Yeah, so. well, I do have a vested interest. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is the part where we network and sell ourselves shamelessly. And so where can people find you? Your Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Sell yourself. Let's do it. Hey, so as we mentioned, the blog is thisgreatape, all one word, dot com. And conveniently, my Twitter handle is at thisgreatape. Just keep it simple. I'm not really into Instagram because, as you know, visual information is just not a really good medium for me. Um, But I have a professional website and that's christinemcondo.com and that's Christine with a C-H. And um, you can contact me through there. I do autism consulting for educators and uh, employers of people on the spectrum. And um, I love giving talks and talking to groups about being autistic and about the kinds of things that you can do to help people who are autistic sort of function and communicate uh, in this neurotypical world. And, um, and I've had a lot of people like parents asking me for advice and through that, and uh, I'm happy to give advice as well. Um, and I really want to thank you actually for this platform and for the work that you're doing because it's so important to give people with autism a voice and let, let them speak for themselves. Let us speak for ourselves. And, um, I, I'm like rooting for the success of this podcast and I want you to be an international celebrity. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Talk about, uh, yeah, I can network like hell then, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes. Thank you again. And for everyone who's interested in reading her article in the Washington post published actually exactly one month, um, from now, uh, or, one month prior, March 3rd. The title is You Don't Look Autistic, The Reality of High-Functioning Autism. And Google that, look for it in the Washington Post. It's thankfully not behind the paywall, which WAPO is notorious for. Actually, I think in some cases it is. Oh, but no. anyone who, want, who doesn't want, I shouldn't say this, but anyone who doesn't want to deal with the paywall, uh, it's my article. <laughs> so I can send them uh, the text. Hear that, folks? If they contact me through my website, which I probably shouldn't be doing, but I don't know. I have a freedom of information then. 
Yeah, well, you got to make the hard choices sometimes. I, I applaud it. So dissemination of information. Thank you all for listening. And again, <laughs> it's been great. Thanks so much.